Abolition. Abolition. And so when we go back and we look at the incarceration, at the Emancipation Act, which was signed by Abraham Lincoln, April 16th of 1862, and we note that this act uses the same clause as the 13th Amendment does to keep slavery legal in our prison system. It is not a shock at all that the District of Columbia has the highest incarceration rate of any state in the Union and therefore of any country in the world. I spent at least, I don't even know how long, a significant amount of time this morning with my jaw just kind of keeping open, right? Because when you look at the reality, and while we've known the incarceration rates are bad, in the, especially in the District of Columbia, but when you look at where they're incarcerated, the percentages they're incarcerated at, and then you look at what the U.S. did with enslavement beginning here in the district and then expanding out around the rest of the country, which is not abolishing it, but redefining and codifying it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. And then especially in the District of Columbia, they didn't only, not only did they do this, I can't even say emancipate, because they didn't, they didn't abolish slavery. The Emancipation Act in 1862 did not end slavery in the district. It redefined and codified it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. And then on top of that, it paid reparations to white people. Close to nine to $10,000 in today's money. I... I don't even know what to say about this, right? It, I mean, it makes sense. This is what our nation does. It just feels overwhelming when you see it laid out in print, both in historical documents and in current statistics right in front of you. And so we need to stop calling... April 16th of 2019 Emancipation Day it was technically white reparation and black incarceration day that's what it was it was not emancipation it was white reparations and black incarceration that's what the act did so let's stop celebrating the benevolence of this white supremacist nation and let's acknowledge not only what it did but how that is impacting the lives that marginalized people especially people of color are living today I 
I am a slave, yes I'm only a slave They'll place my body in an unmarked grave In these confederate days It's kinda hard to lift every voice singing While worrying about how low the sweet chariots are swinging I could swing from a tree but hey Oh I hope and pray they don't kill me today I am still just a slave And the home of the brave A product of the triangular trade Please pardon my ways If I'm nervous or the slightest bit skittish In the presence of the Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch or British They kept me in colonial chains Tell me how to persuade them to chill Or to save me still I'm a slave Oh, I hope and pray they don't you just heard Mark Charles speaking on D.C. Emancipation Day, and that was followed by The Roots, I'm Just a Slave, from the TV show Blackish. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Max Parthas, Peace, Max. Peace, Yusuf. I'm out here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center doing the damn thing. Well, keep doing it then, brother. So in our last episode, we discussed the origins, creation, history, purpose, and actions of what are now modern U.S. police forces. It was akin to the reading of an indictment in open court for all to see. Now, of course, if you missed it, You can always listen to it in our archives at abolitiontoday.org or any of the streaming platforms. Tonight, author, public speaker, writer, and 2020 U.S. presidential candidate, Mark Charles, returns to Abolition Today. We'll speak with him about his recent personal revelations regarding Washington, D.C.'s Emancipation Day, similar to what you just heard in the opening track, his future goals, and discuss the slavery abolitionist efforts to date. Of course, we'll fire things up with music and poetry and bring the abolitionist ancestors' words back to life for a new generation in our Bridging the Gap segment. So before we start that, tell us what you think of the opening track, Max, and how has your week been? Um, well, starting with the opening track, it's good to hear somebody speaking the truth, and Mark Charles is certainly that guy who will speak the truth uh, and shame the devil. So I'm appreciative of that. Uh, When I heard the whole thing, I listened to him uh, about a week ago, um, there was Mm -hmm. some points that came across. I was like, man, I would love to talk to him about that. So I'm glad that he's joining us here today. And, of course, I'm just a slave, blackish, just kind of pointed right to what the problem is right there. The 13th Amendment allows legalized slavery. So here we are just still slaves. All you need to do is have mm-hmm. a conviction. You don't even have to be guilty. You just got to be convicted. That's all it takes right. to remove all of your constitutional rights. <clears throat> as far as um, my week has been, 
it's always, you know, I, I stay busy because slavers don't take no days off. <laughs> so I got to be on right. point. Uh, we had, uh, we're doing some changes with the Abolish Slavery National Network as it's grown, and it is growing uh, by leaps and bounds. Uh, and we had a meeting with the state operations team just this past Saturday that was pretty powerful. We had about, a, about 10 states represented there, uh, all working together to end slavery in each of their own states through their state constitutions. Um, and while we were there, there was a guest that came in from the International League of People's Struggle. Uh, that's an international organization for people's rights, people's struggles. Uh, and they came and heard what we were talking about, and they were so impressed. Uh, shout out to Brother Cody um, that they plan on adopting this issue and amplifying it through their international networks. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. Um, I got some dates coming up that people want to see Max and Tribal and even Yusuf uh, and, and others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In North, I'll be in North Carolina on um, the 16th and 17th, me and Tribal Rain. Um, I'll be one of the speakers for the SEMA uh, meeting there, which is the Southern Appalachian Yearly Association of Friends. They get together every year there, and I'll be coming to address the body, seeking support uh, in the efforts that we're doing right now in ending slavery and getting people out to register to vote so that they can vote for this in their states. Uh, also, on the 18th, 19th, and 20th, I will be in Vermont, along with Yusuf and Curtis Davis and Tribal Rain and uh, Brother Mark Hughes out there. Uh, we've got a series mm-hmm. of events that we'll be participating in, in the home of the Exception Clause, where it all began, right there in 1777, in Vermont, what I call the Vermont Butterfly Effect. And then uh, also on July 2nd, Tribal Rain and I will be in Atlanta, Georgia at Freedom Fest. Uh, we are opening that up and closing it down. So I'm looking forward to being a part of Freedom Fest July 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia. Shout out to Sister Demita for putting this together. Uh, so, that, yeah, that's what's all up with uh, the week, what's coming up, and the track. All right. <laughs> Big week. And also uh, we had the 13th event with the Vermont Racial uh, Justice Alliance. Uh, I believe that was Thursday. We had that yes. event. We're reviewing uh, the documentary, the 13th, and uh, there was a lot of uh, discussion behind that. You know, I was in the room, but I was also teaching class at the same time, so I couldn't really participate like I wanted to. And then, of course, on Friday, I had two teeth pulled, so I feel really weird in talking tonight because I feel as though I sound funny and, you know, I'm not able to open my mouth the way I'm used to. So <laughs> if there's any weirdness coming out, it's because of that. But, uh, yeah, good Good job of pointing out all those dates. We're going to be very busy, and we'll probably have a lot more to add to the schedule within the coming weeks. Uh, so Absolutely. I, yeah, I'm ready to jump into it with our guests, if you are, because our time with all them right. is short this evening. You want you know, to do uh, or should I? Oh, absolutely. So Mark Charles is a dynamic and thought-provoking public speaker, writer, and consultant. He's the son of an American woman of Dutch heritage and a Navajo man. He teaches with insight into the complexities of American history regarding race, culture, and faith in order to help forge a path of healing and conciliation. 
for the Nation is one of the leading authorities on the 15th century doctrine of discovery and its influence on U.S. history and its intersection with modern-day society. Mark co-authored, along with Soon Chan Ra, the new book entitled Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Mark Rand is an independent candidate for the U.S. presidency in the 2020 election. Our listeners all around the world, please give a warm welcome to our guest returning to abolition today, Mark Charles. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be back with you again. Um, And I just want to start by acknowledging I'm talking to you from what's now known as Washington, D.C., and these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. So the Piscataway are the nation that were living here before Columbus got lost, and they are still here. So I want to honor the Piscataway. I want to thank them for the stewardship of the lands where I live and just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here with us again, Mark. Uh, I remember when you first ran for president in 2020, Right not long after you had announced that you were here with us, and we were so proud to be able to share that information uh, on your behalf as the first person to run for president on an abolitionist platform since what was it John Quincy Adams? <laughs> you know, like it's just something right. that never yeah. happened, and we only <laughs> dreamed of it. And you know, the, for, to see it happen in real life was really inspiring for people all across the country. I'm sure. Um, I saw also recently, as I said in the beginning of the uh, introduction, that you had some discoveries. Were those like personal discoveries? Because you said it was the first time you had actually read that document in its entirety. Uh, Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so, I mean, thank you very much. It's an honor to be back with you again. I was honored to run with uh, an uh, abolitionist uh, platform to, to try and remove slavery completely, its constitutional protections from our foundations. Um, and I'm very glad to be back talking with you again today. But yeah, so when I was looking at, um, at Emancipation Day, I live here in D.C., and you know every year this, this comes around. And over the years, right, as I've lived here and as I've heard different things going on, people told me that they had, uh, they had paid reparations to white people um, when they emancipated the slaves, of course, I have two chapters in my book, Deconstructing the Mythological Legacy of Abraham Lincoln. I know not only what a blatant white supremacist he was, but how he was one of the most genocidal presidents in U.S. history towards Native people. And so I had no illusion that he was any friend of people of color. But I had never read the act. And so uh, I wanted to do a show about Emancipation Day on my I, every Several times a week, I have what's called my second cup of coffee. And on my YouTube channel and Facebook page, I sit down and I drink my second cup of coffee around 10:30 or 11 in the morning, and I talk about the politics, the social things, whatever's going on around the country, and I will try to shift people's paradigms and what they see happening around them. And so I wanted to talk about Emancipation Day. Um, and before the show, as I was prepping for it, I thought, you know, I've never actually read the act. And so I Mm -hmm. sat down to read the act because I wanted to see for myself, um, I wanted to see the the language of the reparations that were paid to white people, uh, to to the former enslaved owners, or to the former owners of the enslaved people. And so I wanted to see that language. And so I was reading through the act. And 
I really need to be careful when I do that because whenever you read the foundational documents of this country, they're always worse, right? They're always worse than you think they are. And so as I was reading through it, just even in the first section of the act, um, you know, they're, they're, I'll just read it right here. Being enacted by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the U.S. Um, in Congress assembled, that all persons held to service or labor within the District of Columbia by reason of African descent are hereby discharged and freed of and from all claim to such service or labor and from and after the passage of this act, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the district. <laughs> and, you know, I read right. that, and I'm like, holy crap, they just did the same thing. Right. And it, I mean, it's, it's the same thing as the Constitution, or as, yeah, as the Constitution of the 13th Amendment. And so then, right, once I saw the language in the act that was there that, again, doesn't abolish slavery, it just redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system, I said, okay, I need to look at the incarceration numbers for the district. Because whenever you look at incarceration numbers um, for the country and they break it out by state, they almost never, you never see the district numbers there because they, they break it out by state and technically the district is in a state where, I guess we're a colony of the United States. And so I wanted to see the district numbers specifically. And I went back to a source I use frequently, which is Prison Policy Institute. And I started searching around there and I did some Google searches for, and I, I learned, and I didn't even know this before that, that the, the district numbers are kind of hard to quantify because of the fact that we don't have what would be the equivalent of a state prison here. They shut that prison down a few decades ago. And so if you are convicted of a felony in the district, you go into federal detention. Um, mm. And so we have – the district has the highest number of people in federal detention because of the fact that we basically use the federal detention service as our state prison service here in the district. And so, of course, our numbers are just astronomically high. And so I, there, were, there were two reports, and I actually shared this, them in the notes of my, uh, of my, my video series. One was by um, – it's WAMU. It's a, it's a college uh, news service. And they had a, re, a report they did on the District of Corrections. Does D.C. really have the highest incarceration rate in the country? And then Georgetown Law had another article I found called True Justice, the Disturbing Truth About Incarceration in D.C. And, you know, I found the district's numbers of incarceration were actually, when you go by rate, um, the number of people incarcerated per 100,000, we are higher than any other state in the union. And so, again when you see the history, right? When you see those numbers, the numbers are shocking, but when you see the history, now it doesn't, it, it makes perfect sense, right? Because the history, even before the 13th Amendment, we had the Emancipation Act here in D.C. in 1862, which, again, redefined and codified slavery under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. And so that's the criminal justice system they're using, as you know very well today, to remove the civil rights of people of color um, permanently. 
And so, yeah, I, it was it was one of those mornings. Usually, I try to start my show around 11 a.m. I think I didn't go on to like 1 p.m. that afternoon, or even maybe two. I forget because I was so caught up in doing the research and trying to find all this and just trying to frame how am I going to say this. Um, and so, as, as you heard, as you heard on the clip, I said, let's stop calling this Emancipation Day. Let's call this, um, and I forget what I called it. Uh, what did I call it? Oh, Let's you call definitely it, um, called it white, white reparations, white reparations and, black, and black incarceration. Black incarceration. Black exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, Which is a perfect name for it. It replaced slavery. Uh, no doubt about yeah. that. But there's a couple questions that I did want to ask you about it. One, you said, and you alluded to it here, that the exception clause began in D.C. And uh, was the 60 um, is, is that what you understand? Well, that's what, I mean, that's the first place I saw it. I, I've seen it in, I mean, I'm, let me rephrase that. I know it's in a lot of state constitutions as well. And I've seen, mm-hmm. I think Colorado removed it a few months, a few, like a year or two ago. And I, I think someone just recently, or maybe you sent me some of your research where you're taking yeah. it out of, or you're addressing it in a lot of state constitutions. But this was the first time, I guess the reason I was really struck is because this was the first time I saw the act, the, those words being used mm-hmm. um, prior to the 13th Amendment in a place that was actually trying to end enslavement but wasn't ending it. It was just redefining it. It was hustling. So that was the first time I had seen that. Yeah, it, it's mind-blowing, literally, uh, for the average casual listener to hear this it is mind-blowing i remember when i did the research to trace the 13th amendment back as far as i could possibly get it uh and took it back to 1777 uh constitution of vermont where they had not one not two but three exception clauses they were the first one mm-hmm. and they used it three different times the last exception clause said that you could become a slave for debts damages fines costs or the like Whatever the like may mean, you could be a slave for that. <laughs> and it, during that period, it was mainly for indentured servants coming out of Europe, right, and for yeah. Native Americans to use uh, against them. But as it uh, was adopted in other ways, they started using it. In the, it was used in the Northwest Ordinance in 1787. Then it became mm-hmm. part of the Ohio State Constitution in 1806 uh, and went on from there to the Oregon State Constitution in '43. And then in 61, as you know, Corwin Amendment, which Lincoln supported, which would have enshrined yes. slavery in the Constitution forever with no way to take yeah. it out. Uh, so that was a, kind of an iteration of it. And then Alabama picked it up to 61, and uh, then it reached 1862 D.C. So um, point Lincoln was involved in an exception clause at least three different times that I'm aware of. So he knew exactly what it was going to do. And it was really just word hustle. I mean, these Negroes can't read, <laughs> you know? You know uh, it was very much I, word hustle. If you go back, and you know this as well as I do, but when you go back and read the Lincoln-Douglas debates and you look at the rhetoric that was used around the country, um, they were – the country has this myth that in the 1860s we were debating equality and that is completely false right mm-hmm. they there was abraham lincoln had no 
belief at all that black or people of color were, were equal to white people. He absolutely believed in white supremacy. They were merely debating the institution of chattel slavery, but they were not debating equality by any stretch of the imagination. And both sides, the North and the South, absolutely embrace the, the lie of white supremacy. Yeah, he was definitely a white supremacist. As a matter of fact, he's the first one that I, I had read of. I, I don't know about anybody else earlier than him who actually said it in those words, <laughs> the supremacy yeah. of the white man. I'm for the supremacy of the white man. He said uh, right. at one point, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the union, and it is not to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would do that also. And it appears that that was third choice was the one he went with. Mark? And not only that, but that's the one that's hanging at the Lincoln Memorial, right? Right. That's the quote, hanging at the Lincoln Memorial. That's how we enshrined him in our country um, <laughs> is with that quote. And so, yeah, yeah but the, the, here's the quote. Let me read you the quote I love to read from Lincoln. I don't, I, you probably have heard this before, but the quote that he gave when he was introducing himself in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, um, and, you know, he was just, uh, hold on just a second. He was uh, trying to pull this up here a minute on my, but in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, this is what he said. This is September of 1858. I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. That I am not, nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together in terms of social and political equality. And in so much as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Right. I don't know anybody said they were a white supremacist prior to that, at least in writing. <laughs> you know, it's right. as clear as day. <laughs> it's, right. he, was, he was so clear about it. He's like, I don't give a crap about these people of color. I don't, you know, not only, not only was he constitutionally protecting slavery, but he was literally committing genocide against Native peoples. Yes. I mean, he was, in my lectures, and I, I make the comparison, even in my book, I make the comparison between Lincoln and Hitler. And once you read his speeches and look at his legacy and what he did, that's not even close to a stretch of the imagination. Isn't he responsible for the largest mass execution as well? Of the what? Largest mass execution. Yes, the largest mass. Well, he... And that's not the worst of it. That was the hang of the Dakota, of the Dakota um, 38. Um, that was mm -hmm. in Manitoba, Minnesota. But he also, um, there were, I found four massacres that we can attribute to Abraham Lincoln, um, and including the worst one in the history of our nation. Um, and so he has just this incredible legacy of vile injustice against Native peoples um, that, yeah, I don't even know what to do with most of that information. <laughs> In my experience of studying these times and these people, uh, I have learned 
that they had all the intent to do exactly what we see happening today, to perpetually keep people enslaved, to create a second-class caste system, and to use human trafficking and free labor through slavery as a perpetual engine for the United States. I remember one letter, and I had this discussion with Professor Sinha a few weeks ago uh, about his letter to Douglas, where he told Douglas uh, that they were still friends, and the only difference between them was that the North uh, thought slavery, the South wanted slavery for everybody, and the North thought it should be restricted. And I told him, I said, that word restricted was his idea of using prison labor. For him, that was more humane. The exception clause, the uh, convict leasing, things like that was more humane slavery. And she said, no, I think it was more about territory at the time. But I still think he knew exactly what he was doing when he was talking to Douglas then. For sure. So For sure. When when you when you look at especially if you read the Lincoln Douglas debates, right, they were happening literally in the context of the Dred Scott decision. So that decision had come out by the Supreme Court, which stated black people were not covered by the Constitution. That decision had come out just prior to the Lincoln Douglas debate. And there are several comments Lincoln makes throughout the Lincoln-Douglas debates, as well as early in his presidency, showing, because the debate was, right, do our founding documents apply to the people of color? And he said repeatedly throughout those debates he did not see our founding documents being applied to people of color. He was verbally affirming the Dred Scott decision throughout his Senate and his presidential campaigns. You know, you uh, also pointed out the discrepancies in incarceration based on race in D.C., which, as you said, is the highest in the world by default. Uh, it's roughly like what is it, 49 percent black, uh, 50 percent white, something like that uh, in D.C. But the incarceration rates, the last I read, were 19 to 1. So for every one white person that is being arrested for 100,000 is 19 black people being arrested in D.C. Yeah, when you look at the the numbers put out by the Prison Policy Institute, um, that and this, these were I was looking at some of these numbers. Um, yeah, the, the the rates of incarceration here in D.C. and the numbers are not they're not as standard as they are for states because of the way of the different ways we incarcerate people here. But yeah, their, their numbers are just all over the map, but they're much higher than almost every other state. And yeah, you're right. I, I think it's 4060 is the percentage now, if I remember correctly, of population. But the majority of our prisoners, um, people incarcerated, are, are people of color. Yeah, according to the Georgetown Education Department of Law, they said that uh, 87.4% of male inmates are black, 79.6% yeah. of female inmates are black, and uh, particularly black men are overrepresented with 94.1% of the total inmate population. 94 point in Washington, D.C., you can't find no white criminals. <laughs> like yeah. 94.1% of black people, huh? you know? Man, it's amazing. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier about intention, it, it was always there. And we found that in the state exception clauses that you spoke about earlier, there were 25 of them that adopted similar language. Some of them went to the extreme, yeah. like Georgia, 
Georgia put an addition to conviction. They said, and for contempt of court. So if you threw the, throw the finger up at the judge in Georgia, you could become state property real quick. <laughs> so they wow. applied it all across the country and even in northern states. Yeah. But the main reason was to exploit convict leasing A and disenfranchisement B. Of course, race and class control was part of it. But the disenfranchisement was also beneficial to them, too, because it uh, lowered the number of people who they didn't want voting involved in the political process. And that, that was in the quote I just read you. I have no intention of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor qualifying hmm. them to hold office, right? Lincoln had no thought ever of allowing people of color to participate in, in the political or the, in, the, in the criminal justice system except as prisoners here in the U.S., so even throughout my campaign, I would tell people as I would talk about these issues around the country, and I would say, you know, what we see, what we saw happen with Ronald Reagan's war on drugs, right, which anyone who was paying attention knew was a war on race, what we saw with the mass incarcerations and the for-profit prisons by the Clinton administration, right, even all these bills um, that came out, this is them using the tools that Abraham Lincoln gave them in the Constitution, right? He would, have, he would have seen what Reagan and Clinton were doing and said that's exactly the purpose of putting them there so that we can, you know, when, when mass incarceration got perfected in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, that's what the goal was. That was why Lincoln put that in the 13th Amendment. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I mentioned earlier, and you said it too, how proud we were to hear you were running for office back in 2020. So, you know, before you leave here today, we have a question for you. <laughs> uh, are you planning on doing this one more again in 2024? Well, <laughs> I, I could go on for a long time about the experience of running for, for, uh, for president. On well, you made it up what, with the 38 form. states ballots, right? I, we got on a few. We got on one or two states' ballots. We were we were um, writing candidates in a lot of other states, um, but we had a hard time. COVID really shut down our campaign pretty hard um, because we were not able to get out and get the signatures we needed to get on the ballots. Um, right when we were moving our transitioning our campaign strategy to begin collecting the signatures is when COVID hit back in in early 2020, and so we had to basically give up the hope of getting on a lot of ballots because we weren't going to go out and endanger um, people's lives uh, for the sake of collecting signatures. So as far as 2024 or another campaign in the future, I am keeping that option open. What I've been spending kind of <laughs> the last year and a half doing is looking at um, looking at what would I do differently, right? There's a lot of ways I think I was somewhat naive in a few areas. Of I, I wasn't quite sure of how to go about doing running a campaign. Um, I was definitely uh, caught off guard by a few things. But the thing I think we had, which I wouldn't change if I were to run again, is we definitely had the vision. You know? And I think we even had the talking points. We didn't know how to get people to listen. When, when George Floyd was lynched in, in Minneapolis in, in the summer of 2020 and our nation was debating our criminal justice system and law enforcement and Donald Trump, right, his solution to the lynching of George Floyd was to 
ban certain chokeholds. And Joe Biden's solution to what happened to George Floyd was literally to train officers to shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. That were, was what he said. I was the only candidate who was telling people, why don't we start by abolishing slavery and get this white supremacy out of the foundations of our nation? And yet the press wouldn't cover those stories. The press wouldn't write about those types of things. That's what we were saying as a campaign after what happened to George Floyd. And, you know, um, we were not able to get that message out there. The press was not picking up on the things that we were saying. And so if I were to run again, and what I'm looking at now is what would I do different strategically to ensure that our message gets heard and written about. And, you know, even if you look at, at the, um, so as someone running as outside the two party system, right? The hardest thing to do is to get stage time with the other candidates. And I think of all of the third party independent candidates in the 2020 race, I probably had the most amount of stage time with the, the major democratic candidates because of two of the forums that were held by um, native, native people. The, one that, the first one that was in Iowa and the second one that was in Las Vegas. And so I actually had two events where I had significant stage time on the same platform as the other candidates. The challenge was, and there was one article that came out in Esquire after the, uh, after the August um, Native American Forum in Iowa, and uh, it was written by Esquire. It was written in Esquire by a Native, a native journalist, and the title of the article was, Elizabeth Warren was well-received at the Native American Forum, but Mark Charles was the main event. Um, and so when I got on the same stage with those candidates, I was absolutely able to hold my own. The hardest thing to do was to get the press to write about it. So yeah, we, we had the vision, I think. We had the vision and we had the message. We, we, didn't, we didn't do as effective of a job as I think we could have done or as I would have liked to have done with getting the press to write about and engage with the message that we were putting out there. And so that's what I'm looking at now is can I come up with some new strategies if we were to do this again that might result in a different or a better outcome than what we had in 2020. You were a visionary and you were ahead of your time. Uh, as you remember, you pointed out uh, the only state that had actually tackled this issue had been Colorado in 2018 at that point, And that was creating somewhat of a buzz. But then yeah. during 2020, we also accomplished another two states. Uh, we did uh, Nebraska and Utah also abolished their exception clause. Now, that created even more of a buzz. So we started getting a lot of not just national, but international press on the issue. And this year, we have five states on the ballot to vote in addition to what we've already done. So we got four done for Rhode Island, and now we got five on the ballot this year. And we have as many as 30 preparing for 23 and 24. So the, the buzz, the platform, the spacing for this type of a, of a run is now in place. Uh, so we got Alabama, yeah. we got um, Vermont, we got California, 
Uh, we got Tennessee and Oregon, all are already on, uh, pretty much on the ballot. You got to go through one more hearing, and they're on. So they're all set to go. Uh, it can okay. no longer be ignored by the press. How are you going to ignore something as epic as that that has never been done before? And then, yeah. and that 2021. Is... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was say that's great news. I'm so grateful to hear that the work you're, you're doing to move this conversation forward is being effective. That my hats are off. My hat is off to you. That is fantastic news. We caused so much of a ruckus that we planned and did announce the abolition bill, which was a federal joint resolution to create a 28th Amendment that would negate the exception clause of 13. It was introduced by Senator Merkley of Oregon and Nakima Williams, Congresswoman Nakima Williams of Georgia. Uh, on Juneteenth of 2021, guess what else happened on Juneteenth of 2021? The Biden administration <laughs> suddenly decided to make Juneteenth a holiday to celebrate the end of slavery. On the very same day we were announcing the abolition bill, which we did, uh, and we're still pushing it. We've got a lot of senators on board now for this thing. You know, to change the amendment, we've got to get three-quarters of representatives on board. And so we're doing that through the state efforts as well as a campaign within the federal offices. And that's all being done by the Abolish Slavery National Network, Mark. That is great to hear. I'm glad to hear that there's some uh, uh, of the senators who are willing to engage with that. And I, I've read a lot, and i followed Merkel out of Oregon for a while, and he's actually someone I would love to sit down and talk with at some point because I think he might have some courage to address not only this issue but some other issues that need to be addressed at the foundational level. He seems to be that type of person indeed. Uh, but, yeah, as I said, so for 2024, the platform is now set. It's going to be hard to ignore all of this. And if we win all five of those states, and it may even be more states because New Jersey and Florida also have bills, but they still got to go through certain committees, it could be as many as seven states on the ballot all at the same time. If we win them all, how do you ignore that? If you're ignoring that, it shows that you're doing it on purpose, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It, You'll have a great platform to run on should you do it at that point. The buzz will be there for you. <laughs> that, is, that is great news. Like I said, I, I spent the last year and a half really thinking through and kind of uh, analyzing my campaign and thinking through if I were to do it again, what would I do differently? Because I don't want to just go into the thing and expect the same result or a different result by doing the same effort. So I'm really trying to think through my strategy a lot and talking with people of what are the things I would need to do differently. And engagement with the press and getting my message out more directly to the public are two main things I'm looking at pretty hard. Um, and, you know, a lot of this was – some of this is just there's nothing we could do, right? COVID hit, and we, we were forced to go online for most – the whole second half of the campaign. And that gave us some advantage, but it also gave us a lot of uh, – a lot of challenges because we weren't just near as well known as the other candidates. Man, COVID turned out to be a good thing for us because they made all of the committee hearings virtual. And so we were able to attend all of these different hearings and testify from all over the country. It was amazing. At one point, Vermont had their testimony and it must have been eight different states came in to to talk about that issue in Vermont. It was pretty mind-blowing. So, yeah, that was a good thing for us. Yeah. Normally you have to show up, right? <laughs> but at this one, anybody can come. So we all showed up in mass, and it was amazing to see yeah. uh, historical <laughs> moments like that. 
Hey, Yusuf, I know your jaw is killing you, brother. Did you have any questions you want to ask? You've hit them all. Yeah, it's, it's like having the dry throat and having, you know, <laughs> the the jaw issue. But uh, uh, I know our time is short. I, I, I wanted to revisit the doctrine of discovery uh, with Mark, but we can always do that some other time. All right. Yeah, um, well. Go ahead, Mark. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just I going to, uh, to say something else. But, Yusuf, if you had a particular question or a comment you wanted to make. Oh, well, I mean, I I'm, it, yeah, Mark, please. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's my fault. No, if you I, want to ask I, something I, about the Doctrine of Discovery, feel free to go ahead. I'm happy to answer yeah, anything it, you'd like. It's really my fault because I kind of like left the mic and didn't ask a question, so that just left open air and everyone trying to figure it out from there. Uh, so at what point would you say the doctrine of the – well, what role did the doctrine of discovery play in leading up to slavery in the United States? Well, as I've looked at it, right, the the – the mindset and the paradigm that's set up by the doctrine of discovery is first and foremost the superiority of the white European Christian male, and then it it sets it up as um, you know wherever they go they can take control of those lands if they're not ruled by Christian rulers, and so the the way it happened the way the doctrine of discovery was used was as these nations began going into Africa you know and a lot of a lot of uh, um, the European nations colonized different parts of Africa. And so the doctrine of discovery is what justified. It wasn't as clear as it was here in the U.S., but it's that mindset and that kind of paradigm, that world paradigm, that justified going into those nations um, and into those lands, healing those lands, colonizing those people, and then kidnapping them and then shipping them out as as enslaved peoples. Um, and I was just at the University of Michigan about a month ago, and we were looking at the history of the Netherlands and how they were very, you know, you know a huge player in that. But so the doctrine of discovery, because it was, it wasn't, it didn't come out all at once. It was kind of a doctrine that was being assembled over a period of time, um, but as it was being assembled, that this is what was justifying these nations going into the land and eventually enslaving, kidnapping and enslaving the peoples who were there. And then that and then they shipped them out here to the US where we were this nation was using the doctrine of discovery very specifically um to justify what they were doing to the native peoples here. Um so it's the whole mindset of this doctrine which sets up this value uh, or this lie of superiority and then um, it really leaves a huge open space for exploitation and profit, right? And so when you have that mindset, then anytime you have a group of people that you can exploit and profit from, that's what you're going to do. And so it, it's, um, that's how it's the mindset that came from the doctrine of discovery, which is what allowed, I would say, the whole system of the global slave trade to really flourish during the, the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, just 
a follow-up yeah. question. In I'm our, not sure if you're in our book, in our book, the doc, the unselling truths, we have a couple of the early chapters are actually looking at that at that um, fairly close of some of that history of how the doctrine of discovery was used uh, throughout the slave trade. Okay, as as a follow-up, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the decisions in cases like uh, Johnson versus McIntosh or uh, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, where, you know, they use this doctrine of discovery, you know, to basically enslave the the natives and leading into the trial of, you know, the trail of tears and you know, many of the atrocities that happened during that time, was you mentioned Lincoln earlier, and I just wanted to highlight some of, like, the, the major events, you know, besides the yeah. the, the Dakota War of 1862. Well, well, the Johnson versus McIntosh, right, That that's the, the pivotal case, 1823, where the doctrine of discovery is kind of established as the legal precedent for land titles. Um, and then that precedent gets named and used by the court um, in 1954, 1985, and then, of course, the most recent one that I've talked about frequently, which was in 2005, but written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, this doctrine of discovery, uh, and my, the TEDx talk I gave that's titled We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History, go into depth about that, uh, the, the 2005 Supreme Court case um, um, with uh, Cherokee the one Nation versus Ruth. Georgia. No, that so the most recent one. Wait, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. Are you talking about which case is that? I'm not sure of that case. I, what I, year I was that? I believe that's the 2005 case. No, the 2005 Let case was United Nation versus the City of Cheryl, New York. That was the 2005 case, but. Um, Okay. I know there's, but yeah, I, the most recent case that came out that didn't reference the doctrine of discovery was talking about treaty rights. That one came out in 2020, um, and that was the one that basically declared the whole eastern half of Oklahoma is uh, still a reservation. Um, that one came out, but yeah, there's always these cases. In fact, you might find this interesting. I don't know. Have you? Um, did you hear at all about the case? It literally came out like two weeks ago. Of um, it actually reminded me a lot of the Dred Scott decision, because uh, some U.S. citizens in Puerto Rico apparently sued uh, the United States because they weren't getting some of the same financial. Um, uh, money that was being allocated for COVID um, as, as people in the 50 states had been getting. And there was a case, literally, let me try to, literally, the, the case was decided two weeks ago, I think it was. April, where they, April 21st. Where they, they ruled that, yeah, based on court precedent, based on the Constitution, the citizens of um, the citizens of Puerto, Puerto Rico. Rico are not given the same rights as the citizens of the United States. And this, this I, I can actually read you the ruling. I, I have it. Let me pull it up here. I can actually read you the ruling. But it was really 
kind of mind-boggling um, when I read it because it's looking at – so it's the, here it is. It's the United States um, Petitionary versus Jose Luis Vallejo Madero. This is of April 21st, 2022. It says, the question presented is whether the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment's due process clause requires Congress to make supplemental security income benefits available to residents of Puerto Rico to the same extent that Congress makes those benefits available to residents of the states. In light of the text of the Constitution, longstanding historical practice, and this court's precedent, the answer is no. Now, the thing you have to be aware of out of that is there is a changing debate and a changing understanding of white identity within Puerto Rico. So previously in sentences, in, in the U.S. Census, Puerto Rico did not have a question for race in their census. And the majority of the people in Puerto Rico identify themselves as white. And in 2010 and 2020, they used the more standard form from the U.S., and so the citizens had a race question on there. And I want to read you this quote from a Newsweek article literally just a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, regarding the 2020 census. It said, millions of Puerto Rico residents are less inclined to identify only as white in comparison to 10 years prior. According to the results from the 2020 census, the number of Puerto Ricans who marked themselves as white on the census dropped nearly 80%, signaling a probable shift in how residents of the island and U.S. territory perceive, perceive their racial identity. Um, Yamar Bonilla, a political anthropologist and director of the Hunter College Center for Puerto Rican Studies, said that Puerto Ricans are coming to understand that, and quote, their whiteness comes with an asterisk, and they know they're not white by U.S. standards. Mm. Mm. So, and, wow, that's a heavy blow. Yeah, and so literally two weeks ago, right, the Supreme Court rules. It's like, yeah, Puerto Rican partial white people, you don't get the same rights as these other it's, 50 states. You're off white. I'm like, how is that any different? How is that any different than Dred Scott? I mean, it's, it's not quite as explicit, but it's saying the pretty, right. pretty much the same thing. I mean, I've been reading a book these past few months. It's, I'm, it's going slowly because it's kind of overwhelming. It's called How to Hide an Empire. Um, the, the author is Daniel Amirwar. And the book is fascinating because it talks about how the U.S., basically established a global empire and all of all of their non state colonies were primarily people of color and they were never given the same rights even though they were considered citizens as the rest of the United States Wow. So you hit a lot of heavy stuff right there, and I would just ask uh, as it, it, to summarize it and show how, although it's not directly talking about the 13th Amendment, but how it ties directly in with it, because we're talking about in Puerto Rico, 
that they basically were just told you don't have 14th, the same 14th Amendment rights under the equal protection. So that also is like an underhanded way of saying you don't have the same Fourth Amendment rights, Fifth Amendment rights, Eighth Amendment rights. So, and and this this is where we have to understand the purpose of the Constitution is to protect the interests of white landowning men. That's why the Constitution was written, and this is why. And I will tell you this, and I've said this numerous times, it is so over-the-top troubling the number of Supreme Court justices, including our most recent justice, who is just um, Kamanji Brown, right? Including her, who identify themselves as originalists. People who think they need to interpret the Constitution based on the intent of the founders. And the intent of the founders was to protect the interests of white landowning men, and they saw themselves as superior over people of color. Brother Mark, um, I know uh, you do have an open invitation to stay with us the entirety of the show or how long you want to, but I was told that you only had an hour, and we're coming up on the end of that. Uh, so what I want to do is give you a couple of minutes uh, to s- tell our audience whatever you want to tell them. And I also want to um, give an invitation to you. Uh, we do a quarterly event every few months, the Abolish Slavery National Network gets together with many of our coalition partners, and we speak about this issue and where we're at at that point. In our last quarterly, we had the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, and the great-great-great-grandniece of Harriet Tubman speak, as well as a senator and a couple of congressmen. So I would love to have you come in for our next one and speak a few words to us on behalf of the uh, People's Nations. Would you be interested in that? I would definitely be interested in that. Um, what I would suggest is let's uh, bring my assistant into this who keeps my schedule. But if well, we can work that out, I would love I would love to consider that. Okay, awesome. So I'll, I'll send out the information uh, when it's time. Um, with that being said, I do want to thank you for being here. And as I said, I want to give you a couple of minutes to go ahead and just share with our audience any information that you want to. I wish we had more time because – this has been a fascinating and vibrant conversation, but the mic is all yours, brother. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, when I looked over the materials that you sent me in preparation for this uh, for this um, show, I was overwhelmed by how much incredible work you're doing. And I was really impressed to see the number of states that are working on these issues and the number of states that are beginning to pass. Um, to, to get this wording, this clause out of their constitutions. And so I, I like I said, I am, I'm in awe, and I am deeply grateful for the work you're doing because I think this is what's so important is we have to help our nation wrestle with and address the injustices that were written into our foundations. And the work I see you doing on a state-by-state basis around the country is awe-inspiring. So first of all, I want to thank you so much for doing that. And uh, the second thing I I want to say is for your audience, right, who tunes in and engages with these issues and is willing to talk about them 
and get involved in ways they can to make these changes. That type of energy is so important. And the the third thing I would and I want to so I want to thank your audience for that and for what they're doing. The third thing I would want to say is just about my work, which is not only about abolition, but is about wrestling with the doctrine of discovery and all of its dehumanizing legacy, not just for Native peoples, but for for African-Americans, for other people of color, for marginalized people in this nation and all around the globe. And there is a lot of work we still have to do. I just gave a lecture. I, I, I have a site on Patreon, and I gave a lecture to my Patreon subscribers the other day, just literally just two days ago, where I talked about the myth of American exceptionalism um, and how important it is to address that head on. And we see this both explicitly and passive-aggressively um, throughout our nation's history. You know, um, so one thing we, we say a lot within our communities, we still think that black lives matter, native lives matter, and those are things we absolutely need to say. We have to advocate for the humanity of um, our marginalized communities. However, frequently on my social media, I will post white people aren't superior. And we have to say that just as frequently and just as loudly because that's the underlying lie, right? The underlying lie is that white landowning men believe they are superior, and we don't have to oppress them, we don't have to degrade them, but we do have to decenter them. And that means we have to stop allowing them to believe this myth of their own exceptionalism. And so I really see addressing head-on the myth of American exceptionalism as something that is very key to the work that all of us are doing so that we can actually get these foundational issues addressed. And so the work that I'm doing to address the doctrine of discovery, to bring about this national dialogue on race, gender, and class, to absolutely abolish slavery, but also to change the legal precedent for land titles, which is this dehumanizing doctrine of discovery. My work to create a common memory so that we can actually build a better future for our nation. And so any, all the chances I've had to engage with you and to tell my part of the story and to give some input into the conversation that you're having and to um, affirm and be a part of the great work you're doing, but then to let you know about the stuff that I'm working on and that also needs to be addressed. You know, I'm, there's a whole other side of this. Um, the issue with abolishment, uh, abolishing slavery is absolutely important. The issue of honoring treaties and of making sure that we address the lie of white supremacy, which is what has been written in the foundations of our nation. And if we can take that out, if we can address that, which is not just written in specific sentences, but is a part of the whole ethos of this Constitution. And if we can remove that from, from, the, from the founding documents, that's what's going to give us the best chance of building a nation, 
where for the very first time, we the people actually means all the people. I'm very active on social media. You can find me under the, the username Wireless Hogan. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm, I even do some stuff on Twitch and TikTok. I'm most active on, on Facebook and, uh, and YouTube and Twitter um, where I do my second cups of coffee and I'm engaging with people on a regular basis about what's going on. And so you can connect with me there. People can also connect with me on Patreon, where I'm wireless hook on there too. And I'm working to create this national dialogue on race, gender, and class. So thank you very much for having me on. It was an honor to be with you. And I look forward to the conversation we're going to have moving forward. Indeed, brother. Um, thank you so much. Your kind words thank are you so appreciated. Much. And uh, it has been a pleasure speaking with you once again. And we'll be in contact about uh, that invitation that I made. Uh, and we'll move this thing forward. All of your books and uh, links are available on our website at Facebook on Abolition Today. So make sure you go to Abolition Today. You'll see all the stories we talk about, links to his uh, stuff there, and you'll be able to follow and link up with him. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and take a music break and let some of this digest while we learn a little bit more and get a little bit more inspiration. I found a clip from Michael Vorenberg of Brown University. I believe he was one of the 13th Amendments, the original 13th Amendments, uh, the people that take care of it. What, is it. what do they call them, Yusuf? Curator. I'm sorry, I was reading curator. something. Yeah, Michael, okay, curator. Yeah, I was reading was something. Curator for the 13th Amendment for a while there, so the person that had the physical copy of it and took care of it. Uh, and he talks about the limitations of the 13th Amendment. And then that's going to be followed up by Take the Power Back by Rage from the Machine with a quote from Stani TV, America Never Abolished Slavery. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitionstoday.org with Yusuf Hassan and Max Parthas. Our guest was Mark Charles. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 The assumption of African Americans who saw this amendment was that this was the amendment that gave them equality, a road to citizenship, a road to equal suffrage, a road basically to a country where there would be no distinctions by color. Now, that said, because of the wording of the amendment, it did have limits. It was declarative only, didn't really give any rights because it doesn't give any explicit rights. So it leaves as an open question what rights are attached to freedom. Also, one other example of a limitation is it uh, possesses a clause that says there is an exception to this, to this business of slavery not existing anymore. And the exception is, but for crimes whereby those who have been accused have been convicted. So that if you've been accused of a crime and convicted, you could have your freedom abridged or taken away. You could be treated as an involuntary servant. And that's what ha ends up happening in the late 1800s and early 1900s, well into the 20th century. Criminals are sometimes imprisoned. Their labor is treated as slave labor. They are leased out, sometimes in large groups, to private contractors or farms. They are even sometimes put in chains. And for the most part, these prisoners I'm talking about are African-American. The most common crime would be non-payment of debts. Uh, and of course, many of these former slaves are in debt, uh, and if they can't pay the debt, 
Then they become criminals, then they find themselves in chains in these places, and it looks an awful lot like slavery. And so you can understand the confusion and ultimately the great resentment that the very measure uh, which a generation of African Americans assumed was their ticket to absolute equality and the end of these sorts of things could also be used uh, to preserve a kind of slavery in this country. Don't go, go, go. 
war ended in 1865, enter the Vagrancy Act of 1866. What was the Vagrancy Act? Well, I'll tell you. The Vagrancy Act said that anyone who appeared to be homeless, i.e. former slaves, would be captured, arrested, put involved in chains, and forced to work for free. In other words, they were still enslaved, except now that institution was further protected by the Constitution. I'm going to do a part three, but tag someone who you think needs to be reminded that slavery is still legal in America. And it looks an awful lot like slavery. No more lies. No more lies. No more lies. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard Michael Vorenberg of Brown University speaking on what are the limitations of the thirteenth amendment and that was followed by Take Back the Power Take the Power Back from Rage Against the Machine as well as Stani T V America Never Abolished Slavery. So uh Max you got me fired up with that track right there. <laughs> and he, you know, I love me some rage against the machine, you know, oh, yeah. and at, as he was asking his recurring question, you know, you know, we, we just kept saying, you know, it looks a lot like slavery. And the reason it looks a lot like slavery is because it is. And the courts have said so <laughs> over and over and over again, you know, and we see this happening all the time when we start talking as, as, the gentleman said in the the uh, Steiny TV clip about uh, the Vagrancy Act of 1866. You know, we see today the criminalization of poverty. You know, where they just walk around locking people up. You know, and as as they stated back then, if they appear to be a vagrant, you know. So what do you mean by what if they appear to be a vagrant? How do you define that? And so. There was a great connection across that timeline, and uh, when he started talking about slavery and involuntary servitude, I notice a lot of times when people speak, Max, they leave out the word slavery, because even when he began talking, he spoke about involuntary servitude, which we know that, yes, involuntary servitude still exists, and it exists because of the 13th Amendment, but we leave out the word slavery quite often when they say it looks like it or it feels like it or it smells like it or it tastes like it, but they won't call it slavery. It is slavery, Max. It enslaves like it too. <laughs> yeah, it is slavery. You know, the reason why I said I think that was the former curator for the 13th Amendment is because I remember seeing a video of him as the curator reading it on the anniversary of the 13th Amendment in a short video clip where he intentionally skipped past the part about except for slavery, except for prisoners duly convicted. He didn't even go over that part. He read the first part, skipped that part, and went to the other to the end. And I was like, what? And, you know, I kind of let him know how I felt about that. I think a few other people did too. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe he 
this video together is a way to say, yeah, I understand, and here it is. Because it was very clear about what that is there for and what it does. And then we came to the end after, of course, Rage Against the Machine did the damn thing, uh, where they talked about, well, here's how it was implicated through Vagrancy Act, through Jim Crow laws, through uh, criminalizing a people, a culture, or the things that they do or consume. You criminalize that. And so you get an easy way to start controlling races, controlling class and caste, uh, to incarcerate people and cage them to limit their birth rates or because if you're caging them, you know, they ain't making babies. So you get all these right. opportunities. And then what Mark was saying earlier, like with the Clinton and Reagan area era, uh, that was when they learned how to really capitalize on every aspect of slavery. You don't just have to force them to work. You can make them pay for the things that they have inside at exorbitant prices. So they got to work mm-hmm. these jobs to pay for these things that they need every day. If they want to call their mama, call their, their sons, their brothers, whatever, you can charge them up the wazoo with that too. Uh, you could charge for storing their bodies. You could exploit their families. You could even offer things like what Jeanette Smith discovered, where now you can pay for visiting. So you can get extra visits if you just paid the prison. You can even go to a different place to visit your loved one which is more safe and secure if you have the money to pay for it. So they're exploiting every aspect of the lives and the community. Yeah. Uh, you take that people, and then you sell their images back to their families. <laughs> so, you know, the labor part is always still going to be there, but they have learned to take it so much further than that. Even the new iteration, which you pointed out last week in our own conversations, Yusuf, is where now mm-hmm. they're using the ankle bracelets, right? And you got to right. pay to wear a bracelet in your home where the home, your home is now your prison. So they don't even have to cover the overhead of the prisons no more. Your house is the prison. All they got to do is put a bracelet right. around your ankle, and then you got to pay for that. They save money on having to secure you. They don't have to feed you. They don't have to clothe you. They don't have to do any of that. Right. All they got to do is make sure that you don't even look out your window because most of the times those on – on that uh, home confinement, they can't even go to the window. There's a, a lot of stuff that's been coming out this week, man, but there's a couple of things I did want to talk about uh, in the second hour. We got about, I don't know, 30 minutes left? No, not even that. We got about, about 20 minutes 20 left. 20 minutes? So, yeah, so let me make sure I get this one in. We had a discussion about an article that I received from Scotty Reed earlier today uh, from the Black Talk Radio Network. And it's an excerpt it's from Wafa Junaid, and it's forced prison labor, punishment for a crime, question mark. And it says abstract. And this is a university law review of 2022. And it seems to me like, you know, she's been doing a little digging into this 13th Amendment thing, and she wants to expose and make some connections, right? But there's some things that mm-hmm. puzzle me, because what she does during this expose, uh, abstract expose, is something I see happen very often. She skipped completely over the word slavery. That's the first thing it says, mm-hmm. slavery and involuntary servitude. She skipped involuntary servitude to point that that is legal through the Constitution and completely admitted the whole idea that slavery is also legal through it. I'm going to read a quick two paragraphs of her thing and 
uh, let you hear what she said. Okay. The 13th Amendment specifically permits the use of involuntary servitude as a punishment for crime, quote, unquote. When an individual has been, again, quoted, duly convicted, the word, quoted again, punishment, is not unique to the 13th Amendment. It is also used in the 8th Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, quoted. Courts interpret this term distinctively in the 8th and 13th Amendments. In the 13th Amendment context, courts consistently view the text as barring incarcerated people from bringing involuntary servitude claims, since labor is understood as part of the punishment, quoted again, for their crimes, here, comma, punishment is basically recognized as all institutional treatment that people experience while incarcerated. In contrast, punishment under the Eighth Amendment case law is interpreted very differently. Courts have held that treatment while incarcerated amounts to an Eighth Amendment punishment if prison officials intend the treatment as punishment or if the treatment is a term of the sentence imposed by a court. Therefore, while unpaid labor is considered a punishment under the 13th Amendment because it is viewed as institutional treatment, unpaid labor would receive additional scrutiny under the Eighth Amendment based on the intent of prison officials and the terms of the individual's sentence. Again, as I said, She's pointing directly at the labor aspect of it and completely ignoring the slavery part of it. And I have a theory on why that is. But before I give it, Yusuf, you want to speak on this? You know, uh, we probably have the same idea when it comes to that theory, you know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a cute argument that she's making here. It's cute. I'll I'll say that. It's a cute argument. And then I'll let you go on, Max. In America, we have become indoctrinated to view the criminal justice system as infallible. Mm -hmm. We hear it in the tropes that are used, like, if you can't afford to do the time, then don't do the crime. Mm -hmm. It's an assumption that this justice system would never and has never unjustly incarcerated anybody, that it would never and has never criminalized the people, not because of the color of crime, but because of the crime of color. It assumes that this system has never enslaved anybody in order to make a profit. And so when we hear the word prisoner, it's automatic in our head that they must have done something wrong. And I would mm-hmm. point out to you that there are many instances all across this country throughout time to show that that is not the case, that this system is quick to incarcerate, quick to criminalize, quick to demonize, quick to punish for some imagined wrong. And if their prisons are empty, they'll find a way to criminalize your ass to fill them up real quick. Uh, so it's white supremacy at its purest. You can't even think. It's not. You're not even able to see the word slavery and think it might be real. But labor, forced labor, is real to you. You see? And I would say as a caveat to that, you know, involuntary servitude is a safe term or a safe phrase to have a discussion a about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you start talking about slavery, see, it starts opening that wound again. You know, this is the thing where people always will say, well, it was so long ago, just get over it, you know, because 
as long as they want to believe the lie that Lincoln freed the slaves and the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, then moving forward, there's no reason to talk about it. And that's why they, that's one of the reasons why they skip over it, because they bought into that lie. So two, it's like twofold. It's a safe thing to talk about in voluntary servitude. You know, it's a safe argument. And it's also not race-based. So when you talk about slavery, you also have to bring race into the conversation. So it's, I think that's also why that it's always skipped over. Yeah, it's it's watching cognitive dissonance in action. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're seeing it. Like this person can't even it, – it, it never dawned on them that maybe slavery might actually be occurring. I mean it says slavery and involuntary servitude. Right. How did you cherry pick the involuntary servitude to skip the slavery part? Right. It doesn't say slavery – right. right. It doesn't say slavery also known as involuntary servitude. <laughs> This is why I feel it is so important that we always make sure we maintain the proper narrative because the powers that be will change our narrative. They will find little parts to just focus on exclusively and ignore the other stuff as it's saying that's all okay. I remember when we were back in the abolitionist radio talking about this, and we were saying, look, this is an international problem having to do with prisons everywhere, not just private prisons, but all prisons are doing this, but people wanted to focus on private prisons. And so private prisons became, you know, uh, persona non gratis. And they just focused uh-huh. primarily on that to the point where we see private prisons almost went out of business. But they only represent a small percentage of uh, the prison system. So are we to say, well, job well done, we're all finished here, let's move on. You know, <laughs> that's that's not how it works. How did you excuse the rest that was happening to the state and the uh, federal and just point at the individual uh, uh, private-owned corporations. Uh, They're the same thing, doing the same thing, warehousing bodies for profit. Uh, The same thing uh, occurred there, and it's also occurring now, where rather than focusing on the crime against humanity that we're claiming, slavery, they want to narrow it down just to slave labor or involuntary servitude free labor, and that's the only argument they're willing to entertain. I'm not with that at all. When I said it's a crime against humanity, it's exactly what I meant, and that's how I act. I don't, I'm not a part-time abolitionist. I'm not an abolitionist on the program today, and then when I go meet with some senator or talk with some congressman, I'm suddenly trying to appease them and not be an abolitionist. Right. <laughs> you know? My mind don't change so- based on who I'm talking to. You see? Yeah, so let me let me ask you this question, Max. You and I talk about this all the time off air and quite often on air, and it's always good repeating. What is this warehousing bodies, and how does it tie into slavery? I'm glad you asked that. You said that is an excellent question. Uh, you know, we did talk about this earlier, and it was kind of a joking way that you even people got to even ask me that, like they don't understand. Warehouse right. bodies is simply capturing a person, putting them into a cage, and then making someone pay to house them. And in this case, the someone is the taxpayer. So for all the bodies that you capture, they don't have to be guilty of anything. 
It could be immigrants because they're doing it with the immigration system. It could be the homeless population because uh-huh. they're doing it with the homeless population. You see how they're expanding. All you have to do is take possession of a person's body and then put it on the bill. That's all you do. And in these, uh, some of these prisons, speaking of the, the private ones, have contracts that guarantee 80 to 100% occupancy for up to 25 years. That's the type of contracts they have. They know that this prison is going to be filled for 25 years from 80 to 100% occupancy. Some of them have it at 100%. Like in, uh, I believe it's Arizona, has three prisons that have 100% guaranteed occupancy. And what happens mm-hmm. if they're not filled? Yusuf, do you know what happens if those prisons aren't filled when they have a contract that say they better be? Oh, absolutely. Tell you people know, what happens. Yeah, the state is going to have to pay these private prison profiteers for every empty bed that's there. And it's not the state that's paying, it's the people. The, the people there, listening right. right now and the people that's walking around ignorant of this fact. Yeah, it's called a low crime tax. <laughs> a low crime exactly. tax. Exactly. So if crime goes too low and we don't get these prisons filled, the taxpayer has to pay as if somebody were in it anyway. Um, this is how they exploit it using warehousing bodies. And the warehousing bodies is not limited to prisons. It's especially uh, ex- ex- uh, extorted, um, exploited through the jails and immigration systems. So the jails in, for instance, uh, Louisiana would have all these parishes, and the sheriffs are all like little kings in those parishes. They're making money based on the budget on how many people they got into their jails. So they want what? The jails to always be full so they can make this money. And it's not pocket change. In Alabama, we have reported on here where sheriffs who were already making nearly a quarter of a million dollars a year were also making as much as $700,000 a year just on the money they were saving by not feeding the inmates. They get a budget mm-hmm. to feed the inmates. And whatever you don't spend, you get to keep. And so they were uh, not feeding the inmates, giving them basically garbage uh, through no big contracts with companies like Amarac, who were giving them rat poison and stale meat and stuff, keeping that money. And one sheriff was buying uh, what did he buy? Uh, Mercedes Benz. He got a cottage house on the beach and a couple of other things with the money from not feeding prisoners. This right. is warehouse bodies. You take the body, you take possession, and then you exploit every aspect of that possession. The J- the bail industry is built on this. And, you know, for us, bail is a normal thing in the United States, but there's only two countries on the whole planet that actually allows that to occur, cash bails, where you could pay your way out of a jail. And that's the United States and the Philippines. Nobody else does it, just us. We even got bounty hunters that go and chase bails and kill people who aren't even policemen. They're just freaking bounty right. hunters. Like from the Modern-day slave patrols. Yeah, modern-day slave patrols. Yeah, and in fact, didn't we listen to something last week? So, something in when we did the uh, the Slave Catcher Chronicles as part of their oath, it was told that they would do this duty as privately as possible. And so that's why you have these bounty hunters where they're not tied in with any state or federal government. They're private entities out doing this because the state and federal government are making sure that they're not being held financially liable for the actions of these bounty hunters. Get a little deeper into it with some track and one more song before our program is 
coming to its uh, final segment. Uh, I've got something here I pulled out of the hat. It's called mm-hmm. How Slavery Affected U.S. History, uh, and it's from Christy Clark Pujara, somebody you know, uh, you said, you said, from the University mm-hmm. of Wisconsin-Madison. And we're also going to have some background music from Josh Betty playing a little violin, and the track will be Bob Marley versus 50 Cent, Stand Up For Your Club Rights by Kill Mr. DJ, and it's one of his mashups. Trust me, you're going to love it. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. The root of racism in the United States is rooted in slavery. Um, What makes slavery as it existed in the Americas, so North America, the uh, West Indies, and South America, unique from other forms of slavery that had existed throughout the world in every continent, in every community, was that for the first time, it's going to be attached almost solely to one race of people to make slavery and blackness synonymous. If you ask someone to close their eyes from the Western world and say, what does a slave look like? A black person appears. Um, and that was done for a very strategic reason. The number of indentured servants was decreasing. People were living longer. It makes more sense to um, buy someone for a lifetime than it does for a number of years. You have European colonists increasingly wanting uh, communities completely free of native people who they had tried to and unsuccessfully enslave in mass. And you get a system where race-based slavery is written into law. And so you create race-based slavery and then a generation or so removed from that, people say, well, this is just normal and natural. That, that's just how it is. Uh, black people are slaves because that's the appropriate place for them, and white people are masters, um, forgetting that this was an artificial system that was created to fill a labor shortage and to enrich a few. Um, and the roots of racism uh, from the fall of slavery nationally um, in 1865 after the American Civil War are still rooted in that tradition of slavery. Uh, Understanding citizenship and whiteness as being synonymous come because we have race-based slavery. So if you have a country that calls itself into being that all men are created equal and everyone has inalienable rights, well then why are some people enslaved? And you have to justify that. You have to rationalize that. And the rationale was They're not people in the same way that white people are people. Um, And so you exclude them from the human family. And this has uh, wide-ranging effects for people who aren't just black and white. It has wide-ranging effects for Asian Americans because citizenship is being interpreted as white. In 1790, we get a naturalization law that says only white people can become naturalized citizens which means what happens when Chinese people come to America and Japanese people come to America and Indians come to America when we get things like the Asian exclusion law and all of these things because we have uh, made citizenship and whiteness synonymous and blackness and slavery synonymous and native people are in the nation but outside of the nation. So if you want to understand racism in this country, you have to understand the history of slavery and how it becomes a race-based system. Why, why, these people who work in the source of for everyone who 
Josh Vietti on violin and followed by Bob Marley versus 50 Cent stand up for your club rights, which was a killer kill Mr. DJ mashup. Mashup. You have to say mashup, mash. That was mash. fire, man. Mashup. Yeah, man. It really was. In fact, my mom texted me and said, that's a nice tune. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's mom approved. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah, we, you know, we, we and, got uh, lesson and we got some head nod going on. Exactly. And uh, Christy really dropped it. It's it's amazing that you uh, found that audio of her because I'm actually working on getting her on the program because this is something that she specializes in at the University of uh, Madison, Wisconsin-Madison. You know, so hopefully in the future we'll have her on the program, you know, and you know, I can actually send her this, hey, this is what we put on the show, you know, so we already have the audience primed and ready for you to be on. And, of awesome. course, she just really laid it down there, you know, when she drove home the point of how, you know, whiteness has been akin to supremacy and blackness has been acute, akin to slavery and incarceration. Yes, absolutely, man. Uh, but I do know that we are we were short on time. So what I want to do is take an opportunity mm-hmm. to once again say thank you to Mark Charles for joining us here today sure. and sharing his sure. wisdom and experience and all of that with us. Um, I want to thank our listeners. As always, you guys be uh, supporting hard. <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, I was out earlier. Yeah, I, I was out a little bit earlier saying to myself, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go to the store. I want to my 12 or so supporters need anything. (laughs) 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 But, man, we get some hardcore folks that stay by our side, and we appreciate you so much, and our team members, too, for making things like this happen. Next week, we're going to bring in another former presidential candidate, Andy Williams, who has been on the program before, the Hood candidate. He's going to join us. The Hood candidate. Yep. So we're going to have two former presidential candidates back-to-back representing 
so much more than the average bear represents. Uh, we learned a lot here today. I hope our listeners learned a lot. And I'm looking forward to next week's broadcast. And today was one of those ones where you might want to say best show ever. <laughs> it's close, you know. Right. <laughs> All right. right. We just never mean, get enough time with Mark. Word. And we had a lot of stories to talk about. But honestly, I didn't want to get into no more Slave Catcher Chronicles this week, man. I don't need no more proof of what it is. I don't need to see no more brutality, no more snuff films to know exactly what I'm dealing with. But I understand some right. people do. I just didn't feel it this week after what we went through last week, <laughs> you know? So we skipped right. over the Slave Catcher Chronicles this week. I'm looking forward to our last segment, William Wilberforce, who we use his quote as our slogan. Uh, when he said, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. And if you came to abolition mm-hmm. today, you can never again say that you did not know. We just need you to act like it. Yusuf? Hmm. Yes, sir. And so I'd like to close out by uh, thanking our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Samer Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, Abolish Slavery National Network. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners. And yes, I ditto your comments on, on uh, having Mark Charles in. Thanks to him for coming in again. That We know his schedule is really tight, so we're really appreciative of that. Uh, Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash abolition today. That's where you'll find all the news, information, and powerful tracks like the ones you just heard on this program. We're also available on all major podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Also remember to join the movement at abolishslavery.us to become part of the solution. We still uh, are asking people to text. End the exception as one phrase, no spaces, to 52886 and follow the prompts. That's going to send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause to the 13th Amendment. And as Max indicated, our Bridging the Gap segment is going to be something really great. William Wilberforce, it's his abolition speech from May 12, 1788, and that's going to be followed up by Cash Doll. And, yes, you did hear me say Cash Doll, and the track is called 13th Amendment. So you hear these artists out here with all these crazy songs, but even they know what's going on. So Cash Doll has this track, 13th Amendment. We'll be back next Sunday, May 8th. Inshallah, God willing, with another master class on slavery abolition. Uh, So until next week, you know, I want to also wish all of those who just completed the month of Ramadan and Eid Mubarak, you know, tomorrow be the day of celebration for completion of the Eid or completion of the month of Ramadan. So Eid Mubarak to everyone who's done that. And we'll say, uh, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Later, Brother Max. Abolition. Abolition. When I consider the magnitude of the subject which I am to bring before the House, a subject in which the interests not of this country, nor of Europe alone, but of the whole world and of posterity are involved, 
and when I think at the same time on the weakness of the advocate who has undertaken this great cause, when these reflections press upon my mind, it is impossible for me not to feel both terrified and concerned at my own inadequacy to such a task. But when I reflect, however, on the encouragement which I have had through the whole course of a long and laborious examination of this question, and how much candour I have experienced, and how conviction has increased within my own mind in proportion as I have advanced in my labours, when I reflect especially that however averse any gentleman may now be, yet we shall all be of one opinion in the end, when I turn myself to these thoughts, I take courage, I determine to forget all my other fears, and I march forward with a firmer step in the full assurance that my cause will bear me out, and that I shall be able to justify upon the clearest principles every resolution in my hand, the avowed end of which is the total abolition of the slave trade. I wish exceedingly in the outset to guard both myself and the house from entering into the subject with any sort of passion. It is not their passions I shall appeal to. I ask only for their cool and impartial reason, and I wish not to take them by surprise, but to deliberate point by point upon every part of this question. I mean not to accuse anyone, but to take the shame upon myself, in common indeed with the whole Parliament of Great Britain, for having suffered this horrid trade to be carried on under their authority. We are all guilty. We ought all to plead guilty, and not to exculpate ourselves by throwing the blame on others. And I therefore deprecate every kind of reflection against the various descriptions of people who are more immediately involved in this wretched business. Having now disposed of the first part of this subject, I must speak of the transit of the slaves in the West Indies. This, I confess, in my own opinion, is the most wretched part of the whole subject. So much misery condensed in so little room is more than the human imagination had ever before conceived. I will not accuse the Liverpool merchants. I will allow them, nay, I will believe them to be men of humanity, and I will therefore believe if it were not for the enormous magnitude and extent of the evil which distracts their attention from individual cases, and makes them think generally, and therefore less feelingly, on the subject, they would never have persisted in the trade. I verily believe, therefore, if the wretchedness of any one of the many hundred negroes stowed in each ship could be brought before their view, and remain within the sight of the African merchant, that there is no one among them whose heart would bear it. Let any one imagine to himself six or seven hundred of these wretches, chained two and two, surrounded with every object that is nauseous and disgusting, diseased and struggling under every kind of wretchedness. How can we bear to think of such a scene as this? One would think it had been determined to heap upon them all the varieties of bodily pain, for the purpose of blunting the feelings of the mind, and yet, in this very point, to show the power of human prejudice, the situation of the slaves has been described by Mr. Norris, one of the Liverpool delegates, in a manner which, I am sure, will convince the House how interest can draw a film across the eyes so thick that total blindness could do no more, and how it is our duty, therefore, to trust not to the reasonings of interested men, 
or to their way of colouring a transaction. Their apartments, says Mr. Norris, are fitted up as much for their advantage as circumstances will admit. The right ankle of one, indeed, is connected with the left ankle of another by a small iron fetter, and if they are turbulent, by another on their wrists. They have several meals a day, some of their own country provisions, with the best sources of African cookery, and by way of variety another meal of pulse, according to European taste. After breakfast they have water to wash themselves, while their apartments are perfumed with frankincense and lime juice. Before dinner they are amused after the manner of their country, the song and dance are promoted, and, as if the whole was really a scene of pleasure and dissipation, it is added that games of chance are furnished. The men play and sing, while the women and girls make fanciful ornaments with beads, which they are plentifully supplied with. Such is the sort of strain in which the Liverpool delegates, and particularly Mr. Norris, gave evidence before the Privy Council. What will the House think when, by the concurring testimony of other witnesses, the true history is laid open. The slaves, who are sometimes described as rejoicing at their captivity, are so wrung with misery at leaving their country that it is the constant practice to set sail at night, lest they should be sensible of their departure. The pulse which Mr. Norris talks of are horse beans, and the scantiness, both of water and provision, was suggested by the very legislature of Jamaica in the report of their committee to be a subject that called for the interference of Parliament. Mr. Norris talks of frankincense and lime juice. When surgeons tell you the slaves are stowed so close that there is not room to tread among them, and when you have it in evidence from Sir George Young that even in a ship which wanted two hundred of her complement the stench was intolerable. The song and the dance, says Mr. Norris, are promoted. It had been more fair, perhaps, if he had explained that word promoted. The truth is that for the sake of exercise these miserable wretches, loaded with chains, oppressed with disease and wretchedness, are forced to dance by the terror of the lash, and sometimes by the actual use of it. I, says one of the other evidences, was employed to dance the men while another person danced the women. Such, then, is the meaning of the word promoted, and it may be observed, too, with respect to food, that an instrument is sometimes carried out in order to force them to eat, which is the same sort of proof how much they enjoy themselves in that instance also. As to their singing, what shall we say when we are told that their songs are songs of lamentation upon their departure, which, while they sing, are always in tears, insomuch that one captain, more humane as I should conceive him, therefore, than the rest, threatened one of the women with a flogging, because the mournfulness of her song was too painful for his feelings. In order, however, not to trust too much to any sort of description, I will call the attention of the house to one species of evidence which is absolutely infallible. Death, at least, is a sure ground of evidence, and the proportion of deaths will not only confirm, but if possible, will even aggravate our suspicion of their misery in the transit. It will be found, upon an average of all the ships of which evidence has been given at the Privy Council, that exclusive of those who perish before they sail, not less than twelve and a half percent perish in the passage. 
Besides these, the Jamaica report tells you that not less than 4.5% die on the shore before the day of sale, which is only a week or two from the time of landing. One third more die in the seasoning, and this in a country exactly like their own, where they are healthy and happy as some of the evidences would pretend. The diseases, however, which they contract on shipboard, the astringent washes which are to hide their wounds, and the mischievous tricks used to make them up for sale, are, as the Jamaica report says, a most precious and valuable report which I shall often have to advert to, one principal cause of this mortality. Upon the whole, however, here is mortality of about 50%, and this among Negroes who are not bought unless, as the phrase is with cattle, they are sound in wind and limb. How then can the house refuse its belief to the multiplied testimonies before the Privy Council of the savage treatment of the Negroes in the Middle Passage? Nay, indeed, what need is there of any evidence? The number of deaths speaks for itself, and makes all such inquiry superfluous. As soon as ever I had arrived thus far in my investigation of the slave trade, I confess to you, sir, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did its wickedness appear, that my own mind was completely made up for the abolition. A trade founded in iniquity, and carried on as this was, must be abolished. Let the policy be what it might, let the consequences be what they would, I from this time determined that I would never rest till I had effected its abolition. Land of the free, it lies the home of the homeless. Too many die every day, and we really just want this. Freedom. Freedom. Yeah. Yeah. 
abolition, 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 abolition. abolition.